Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we are so excited to have Dr. Yuchenna UC Osai on the show with us. She is creator and founder of UC Logic, a judgment-free social media platform dedicated to the sex education and empowerment of adults slash grown folk. When it comes to sexual intelligence and great sex education, Dr. UC embraces always being unapologetically real and authentically kind. She is also an assistant professor at the University of Texas Dell Medical School for the Department of Women's Health and manager of the Pelvic Health Physical Therapy Program at UT Health Austin. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited to have you. You see, I'd love to ask, what are you currently working on? Uh. <laughs> I know I know it's a big question. That's so a very let's, big let's question. Let's go wherever. Sure. Right now, on the academic side, I'm working on a couple of research projects centered on looking at the impact of systemic oppression on sexual function of women, particularly Black women and women of color. Hopefully, that will catapult itself into some grant opportunities where we can do larger studies on all women, all persons with vaginas, non-binary individuals, things like that. So we can take a look at how oppression and the stress of oppression and systemic oppression interpersonal and internal can impact sexual function. If there's an impact, we just don't know. We know, but we don't know how. So let me just put it that way. (laughs) I'm curious what stage in the research that you're at right now. So we're at the IRB stage. So hopefully that will, we'll hear back soon in a few weeks. And then we're just ready to rumble. Very cool. I am really interested to see what you guys find with that. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's actually been a project I've been wanting to do for about five years before all of before 2020 happened. I think this was on my mind since 2016, actually. And I, I had it written and I just never pulled the trigger for lots of reasons, right? You, you have clinical practice, you have faculty responsibilities. I'm running a small business at the same time. So time and bandwidth are <laughs> precious commodities. And sometimes it's just other things tend to take higher priority during that time of life. So I finally decided, let me do this and now we'll see what happens. Are there any other projects that you've got brewing? Because it sounded like that was one of many. Yeah. I <laughs> Actually, with UC Logic, I'm in the phase right now. It's summertime. So looking at what it is I need to change and improve, how am I going to change my voice, my impact? And so we're looking at some educational programming and I'm in the early stages of thinking about product development and things like that. So still sussing that out. It's still very much a dry race board process right now, but those are the things that I'm working on. Excellent. It's so interesting to me that you focus on pleasure. As someone who's been following you on Instagram, you're all about pleasure for everybody in every way finding what works for you. And I've heard pleasure described as an act of rebellion against systems of oppression. 
Yes. So you're actually focusing on liberation from multiple oppressive systems. Absolutely. How has that shaped your voice in sex education or vice versa? You know, that's a really beautiful, sophisticated, thoughtful question that I don't ever think I've actually sat down and really dissected. I think that when you talk about pleasure as radical, it is, especially if you're in a a body that is not white or that is not white passing. And that has actually deep roots in slavery, but even predates slavery. When you think about the enslaved individual, they're not allowed to show joy. They're not allowed to show excellence in any capacity. When you look at Jim Crow laws and how those are put together and how those laws were given to law enforcement officials from everywhere from judges, lawyers to police officers, it is very much a radical thing to show joy, to to be in your joy. And when you're thinking of the concept of pleasure, there is a component where we do need to think about identities, racial identities, sexual identity, and how does that play in one's ability to really tap into that pleasure zone? Does society support it? Or maybe they support it partially, but do they police it? Mm. Is there significant punishment to engage in pleasure, to engage in your joy? And when you think about gay pride, June is Pride Month, and you see a lot of these people say, oh, it's going to be fun, party. And that party, that joy, that, that essence is It is a form of rebellion. It is a form of saying, hey, we can encompass all things, the entire spectrum, right? We say sexuality is on a spectrum, gender is on a spectrum, joy is on that spectrum, and we can inhabit all of those. I don't know if I really answered that, but that's what's coming to mind when I think about pleasure. And showing joy when you're a person who has historically not been allowed to or not allowed to pleasure then goes on to serve others. I've seen it in the show Pose, which me and my boyfriend are obsessed with. And so not to spill any details, but there is a big expression of love and joy in the third season. And Electra, one of the main characters, Mm -hmm. love her. Mm -hmm. She's like, this isn't just about you. This is about you showing up for everyone else and showing them that they are worthy of joy, pleasure, safety, healthy, supportive relationships when you probably look around you and the people that look most like you typically are not demonstrated to have those things. And it makes me think about the city I live in, Austin, which is a very uh, homogenous city, very white, awesome city, great city, beautiful, lots to offer. But I say this because everyone thinks that this is the liberal Xanadu Mecca of Texas. And what's interesting is it is a liberal city, but you have a lot of people who don't necessarily understand their liberalism. They think, oh, well, I'm well-intentioned and I want everyone to have access and that's it. When people make the statement to me sometimes, does everything have to be about race? Well, it is. When you think about it, it is. It's just some of us have an inherited advantage of not having to worry about it, not having to think about it. And some of us have an inherited disadvantage. And that doesn't mean that I work harder and you're lazy. And it doesn't mean that you work harder and that I'm lazy. It just means that this is just the cards that we were dealt. I think there's so many echoes of that in not just cities, but in 
educational spaces, workplaces. Absolutely. I'm sure that there's so many experiences of that in the educational realm. And I, and I know mm-hmm. that you're an assistant professor and that you're working with students. And I, I'm curious to hear about your experience in your work life with that aspect of things, with this aspect of this newfound interest in exploring the diversity, equity, and inclusion, but not (laughs) truly understanding what that means, what that is, how that is actually going to be applied in a way that makes any difference. Yeah, I'm scratching my head, not because I'm I'm (laughs) frustrated. It's almost, where do I begin? I, I was talking with a former colleague of mine. He's associate professor at John Hopkins now, and he used to be my faculty mentor. And I said to him, this year has taught me about leadership, the importance of leadership. I know that sounds like such a silly high school level thing to say, <laughs> but, but it's so, I, I gotta tell you, leadership is everything. It is yeah. everything. When you have poor leadership or thoughtless leadership, you have a lot of branding that's false, right? posing. (laughs) You have a lot of, oh, we have this mission statement that's anti-racist, but that hasn't matched their budget. You can't become an anti-racist institution if you don't commit serious dollars to revamping everything. And not just giving these anti-bias training or microaggression training, but actually level setting the education. So part of the problem that we see in this country is that from a baseline level, people are not taught about history not in a real way. So they don't understand (laughs) why some of these issues are happening. They're just going by that default silent education that they're getting through how society functions. So when you said level setting education, I'm not familiar with that term. Could you explain what that means? Yeah. A lot of people don't know the history of racism. They don't understand where it comes from. They don't understand the concept of colonialism, or they might understand it a little bit, but they don't understand the steps from colonialism to slavery, the concept of accumulated wealth. And I don't think people even understand systemic racism. They're just thinking of the prison system, but they're not thinking about the finance system. They're not thinking of real estate. They're not thinking, <laughs> they're not thinking oh, wow, the veterans, World War II and World War I vets, They were given the GI Bill, but the GI Bill was dispensed by local government, right? Regional government. And in the Jim Crow era, if you were a Black vet, it wasn't so easy to access. And that wealth, that GI Bill, that that ability to buy a house, go in the suburbs, that gives you a completely different ability to move in life, not just for yourself and for your immediate family, but for your, it's your legacy. Yeah. So you're saying here, listen, we need to first start with understanding history before we start asking, what do we do? Where do we go? What's the next step? Is like, where have we come from? Just like we do with our patient history, right? Like we don't just start telling people, here's three exercises. We sit and we learn their story and we try to understand what's been going on. Yeah. Because the more you're informed, the less fragile you are. Mm. the more you can have a conversation with someone without getting all in your feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when we don't understand this background and this experience, it's similar to any encounter with any human in the world, right? You may be running into somebody in the grocery store and you're like, oh, what an asshole. They were so rude to me or whatever. But maybe their parent just died or maybe they're stressed about their sick child, whatever. 
if we don't understand somebody's story, their context, where they're coming from, and the things that have led them to that point, it's easy to say they should be functioning a certain way based off of my standards because of how I operate in my worldview. And I think that what you're speaking to here is this idea of understanding the the story and developing that human connection instead of just making a blanket assumption and blanket expectations on them. I think that's an important piece there. It is an important piece. And I think another thing too, when you're thinking about leadership and academic systems is once you have that foundational knowledge, then you actually have to have specific training to the people at high levels of power, people with medium levels of power, and people with baseline levels of power. The staff, the chairs, the associate chairs, the deans, the assistant team, when you're thinking of that process, because those people actually need to know, okay, how do I lead now with this lens? How do I define professionalism? Is that rooted in white supremacist ideas of behavior? Mm-hmm. And so you know, how do we step back and make this a little bit more equitable? So equity doesn't mean that someone gets less. Equity does not mean someone gets more. And I think there's also that fear of loss or that fear of scarcity. There's no scarcity here, folks. When we have equity, everybody wins. No one, if you're already high, you're not going to get demoted. No, we're just making sure that everyone has an equal piece of the pie. I, I cannot stress that enough. This isn't a scarcity thing. It's just not. If people looked at it like this, oh, we are, <laughs> sorry to be cheesy, but members of a family. We're all one big happy family. Like I want to pull my sister up. I want to pull everybody up. I want to make sure everyone's on the boat. Mm-hmm. Everyone's on the boat. Let's just make sure we all get on the boat. And then once you're on the boat, do what you need to do. That's it. There's a visual I saw that sticks with me about equity. And it was two kids trying to look over yep. a, a fence. And one of them is tall, like they're six feet. And so they can see over the fence. Yep. And they were saying that equity is just giving the short kid a box to stand on so they can both see over the fence. It's not doing anything to the other person. Exactly. It doesn't take away (laughs) at all. You got your path. I think there's just such a richness that can come from everyone being at the table. I think about in physical therapy specifically, it's so sorely lacking in diversity. And there's so many things that I see in this field that, that make me think about this very patriarchal way of being. For example, this idea that you're a mechanical being, you're going to come to me, I'm going to fix you and send you on your way. And if you're not compliant and to do what I tell you to do, then you're, you failed. And I think about these ideas that I've heard you speak about in the past, intersectionality. And mm-hmm. when we consider the whole person, when we consider their viewpoint and these other aspects of their life that could be impacting their care, it no longer is this robotic approach of I'm going to fix you and be your mechanic. It's two humans in a room having an interaction and problem solving together. It's, it's such a great example of this, we're boosting each other up. Isn't that more satisfying for the provider and for the patient to have an interaction like that? I agree with you. I agree. And I think it actually makes it more complicated, though, from the provider standpoint, because you actually have to do a different type of lifting, heavy lifting. In the- mm-hmm. and it stretches you more. It does. Because the thing is, physical therapists, we're given this rubric and how to think clinically and soundly and to protect our patients, take care of our patients. We have that obligation to them and that isn't going away. But I think that the way that we're taught, the system, the curriculum and that we're learning in creates that perspective. 
right? We're, we very much are taught in a biomedical framework. And I think that if we are taught in a biopsychosocial framework, not just physical therapists, but honestly, all health professions, but then also demonstrated that through not just what we're getting didactically in the classroom, but also through how we see our faculty interact with each other, how they deal with conflict, how our clinical instructor is managing that piece. Because that example is also very impactful. We study, we take tests, we know how to do that in our sleep, but we're also getting that, that silent cultural education and how things are managed, how things are dealt. Us as students, I can only imagine what students absorbed last year with COVID, with George Floyd, all of that. And how faculties handled that says a lot, tells the students a lot. It tells them what is the true lesson here. And are we able to sit with it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are we raising up to support people? And when you were just talking now, you were speaking of the biomechanical model. We're all on video together and you kept making a tunnel yeah. hand gesture. Yeah. And, and that was so powerful. I just want listeners to know we went from tunnel to this open field. And when we get into that open field, it can be a strange place when you haven't had guidance. Very strange. Let's say that you're someone who didn't have great modeling and you're waking up to this in your clinical practice. How do you start bringing in this information in a very practical way, like through talking with patients about it. Could you even give us some sure. examples? I think an example, so again, this is talking about inclusion. So you can't do diversity if you don't have inclusion. And it really depends on your setting. But I think one of the things is getting that baseline education first. And then once you have that baseline education, you need mentors. As a pelvic health physical therapist, I couldn't do what I did without mentorship. I couldn't have learned without having a mentor, without having someone to bounce ideas off of. We couldn't have learned as PTs without having that group learning. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we couldn't have it without a leader. And that can be, thank God for social media, but there's so many <laughs> people out there in social media that actually do demonstrate this. And you can watch by observing those conversations and practicing that. But then also in the clinic, you can turn around and include okay, maybe I need to include an, a daily discrimination scale. That's four questions in my intake. Maybe I need to expand some of the questions I'm asking instead of just saying, are you sexually active? Do you have pain? Yes, no. Okay, may I help support you? Is this a priority for you? Is there a lot of distress here? Let me see if I can hook you up with a referral to a specialist because maybe I might be an orthopedic specialist where head and neck is my focus. But I asked the question, but I need to not just ask a question. I need to follow up with the resource for this patient. I don't need to be the sexy time expert, but I need to open that up. Or if they're asking about mental health issues, going as farther as to say, okay, in your resource list of people that you refer to, having people not just who are cisgender and straight, but also maybe people of color, people who are non-binary, or people who work with individuals in marginalized communities. So even just having a list of resources or referral people that you can talk to. That I think is really ways to expand this biomedical perspective. So there's so many different ways of doing it yeah. is what I hear is there's no standard way of like, okay, we're all going to do X, Y, and Z. Or is there some preferred order apart from getting your baseline education? That is really clear. Just like you needed to know anatomy to become a PT you need to have the understanding of history for racism and these other areas, right? Trans health 
et cetera, et cetera. You have to have the education. And then how you incorporate it into your practice may look different depending on what you do. Is that fair? Absolutely. I think I have my intersections of racism and power course, healthcare redefined, and it's six hours. And I've, I think I've given the course, I don't know, six times in the past year. And the only criticism I got, and I, I actually don't feel as criticism, but it was, I need more practical stuff. I need perfect step-by-step. <laughs> How do I? And I provided framework after framework and idea after deal. And another criticism was that the course was only a day. They wanted two full days, two eight-hour days. And I'm thinking, no, like if this is the first time you're absorbing this information, it's a lot. You actually need to process it, especially if this is the first time that this is falling into your eyes, coming into your soul with an open heart. It can be really difficult. So it really wasn't a criticism. It was just more, I need to know exactly what to do because that the PT in us wants to know, okay, so exactly what manual skill <laughs> can I apply to this problem? And I'm just like, yeah. there are actually bunches <laughs> that will have an impact. It just depends on where you are on this journey. And then whatever path, whatever intervention you choose, you need to practice that intervention until you're good at it. Then you go on to more higher level interventions. Does that make sense? And that's the way we need to think about this. You're not going to become, you know, Norma Ray of racism tomorrow, especially if this is the first time that it's brought into your consciousness in a real way. And that's conscious clinical practice is knowing better, doing better, sure. Maya Angelou. But then also understanding your boundaries. I think as a pelvic PT, when I first started talking about sex, I didn't really know all of my biases towards sex. Right. <laughs> and no. I'm going to admit it and say I'm pretty sure I used to just ask about penetrative sex and basically always make the assumption that people were in heterosexual relationships. And my heart is breaking for everyone who saw me before that. But you have to start somewhere. You have to learn a little bit. You have to integrate a little bit. And you're not just going to jump right into taking the most inclusive history when you have had no guidance, no education. Right. But sitting with that shame or that guilt or that sadness or grief, that also takes time. It does. It does. I was doing a talk and one of the participants didn't come up to me, but direct messaged me in the Zoom chat. You know how that goes. And, <laughs> and they typed out how they were just so upset, not at me, but they were just emotionally taken aback. And then they felt guilty. It was just, it was the most, it was the sweetest thing where they were trying to compliment me. But then they also were like, I'm so sorry. I'm putting my emotions on you. I Oh, that's, it's, and then they asked, is that fragility? Is that privilege? And I just, I was like, oh, it's okay. Like just woo-saw, woo-woo-woo. It's okay. This is just a lot. There are a lot of emotions that happen with this. And when I talk plainly, I need your audience to know that I usually don't talk this plainly about race, but I'm tired. And my, my, my usual mask. mask is, it's just, I don't feel like putting it on today. So I'm just going to be completely honest, but gentle because that's who I am, but I'm being real. Yeah. I'm so glad we're getting this version. I'm excited about it. <laughs> when we were preparing for this podcast. You had said something to us that I just thought was so impactful, which was that you have cultivated a lot of your identity around 
trying to perform or create an identity that is pleasing to white people and trying to do that in the framework of that's what you need to do in order to get where you are and be successful in the society and culture that we have. And it sat with me. It's something I've been thinking about since we talked a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that it made me think about was that this idea that as healthcare providers, we're often put into this box of feeling like we need to be this blank canvas for our patients. Like we're just this empty shell. We're supposed to be like this robot that's treating people. When in reality, you have two people in a room that are both bringing their own stuff to the table. And I'm curious to know what your experience has been like from your side of things as a provider, having this mask that you've put on and that it sounds like you're maybe exploring getting rid of that mask over time. But I'm curious to hear your experience with that. Well, it's tricky. I've been speaking on this, on the speaker circuit, the conference circuit for years about this issue. I think what made this time different with George Floyd is that the whole world, there was this window of willingness to listen, like really listen. And what I found to be very interesting is I had a lot of my white patients ask me if I was doing okay. And so that was actually very uncomfortable for me because I just didn't, it's like, uh, I'm fine. Let's go back to your incontinence issue. You know, yeah. uh, you know, like, cause I, it, it was one of those things where I didn't know how to answer them because I really wasn't okay. I wasn't at all. Mm-hmm. But I think that I also had a responsibility as their provider to hold it down. So I always thank them for asking, but the focus is them. And I was okay with that because I also know that one thing about when you talk about race and in those instances, that context of patient provider situation, there's a power dynamic there that I very much respect. And I did not feel like it was my role to tell them about my pain, but I acknowledged that they were asking about my pain. And I appreciated that. And I said that. I said, I really appreciate you asking. Thank you. The the year was, it was very eye-opening. I think people showed a lot of themselves. People showed their whole ass last year for lots of different reasons. You know what I mean? You're yeah. like, oh, I didn't know your booty looked like that. You know? And, and I, think, I think that it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see patients, colleagues, friends, how, how people reacted. I think that I'm very lucky in that the friend circle that I've cultivated in my 30s, is, they're pretty, pretty legit <laughs> and safe <laughs> for the most part. You also always have a few stragglers, but for the most part, everyone was safe for me. But I think in a sense, for me personally, quarantine was also helpful because it just kept me away from all of the nonsense. And it was the first time in my lifetime that we've had such a large conversation where so many people were having this conversation and it wasn't a one-off. It's like you saw it on social media, you saw it on the news, you saw it everywhere that you turned and it was easier to step into in some regards. There was also so much information out there. And one thing I heard was don't ask people how they're doing if you're not close enough to be able to sit with them about how they're doing. Like it's not the time to just turn around 
to the Black person you know and say, oh my God, how are you? Have you shown that you're a safe space? Have you shown yep. that you are willing to have this conversation? Do you show that you care about them at all the other days of the year where they're still Black, but this didn't happen on a national scale? And so that question of how are you, it, it's well-intentioned, but it's kind of like, you're not asking me if my shoes are comfortable. You know, yeah. <laughs> like you're asking for a really raw, honest conversation. You're asking me to kind of simplify it for you to respect the fact that you're my patient or just an acquaintance. Absolutely. why do that? Don't go there if you don't truly have the space or you truly have the relationship. Yep. That was just that. I just wanted to come out and say- No, that was was very well said. (laughs) That was very well said because I think when I have a patient asking me that, especially at the height of everything last year, it was a little- Uh, in my mind, intrusive. But I also understand that they were trying to extend a caring hand, but it's almost like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? And I'm like, chances are you don't. Don't worry. I got you. We're not going to talk about this. You know, because I I also had to put that up. So in one one stance, it was very, I appreciate it. On another stance, it was more work for me to protect myself. Mm -hmm. I'm curious with this experience that you had in the last year with George Floyd and all of these conversations that came out of that. What did you do to take care of yourself during that time? It sounds like quarantine might have actually been a little bit of a barrier, but was there anything that you had to do differently as a provider or in your work to set that boundary or to support yourself better through that? Yeah, I I did a lot of everyone jokes that I'm not the most outdoorsy person. (laughs) and I'm not but I live right by this huge 400 acre park so I basically would take walks every day I didn't feel comfortable walking in my neighborhood but I felt comfortable walking in the woods so that was comfortable to me and I think honestly just like everyone everyone was on the struggle bus on some capacity last year whether it was COVID quarantine or George Floyd stuff and I think (laughs) having Zoom parties with friends and those types of touch-ups, I I wasn't, you know, my Nigerian mother was not a Zoom person before all this or a FaceTime person, and now she is. So it was those things that helped. And again, I went into some of the coping strategies that I give my patients where I'm like, I need to kick this into high gear. It's so hard to take your own advice with that stuff sometimes, <laughs> at least for yeah, me it is. <laughs> big time, big time. <laughs> like I am not exempt from self-care and boundaries. Absolutely. I did, I was one of those people where I did go in November. I went to Tulum. I went on vacation. I looked like I was wearing a hazmat suit on the plane. It's like crazy lady <laughs> with like the face shield and the two masks and all of that. This is before we had the vaccines and I had to be careful. So back to your research that you're working on, Mm -hmm. what is your hypothesis of what we're going to find about Black women, sexual function? I think sexual dysfunction in Black women is much higher than in white women. I think that Black women just don't have the bandwidth to address it, or it's not as distressing to them as it is white women because for lots of factors being that they might have different things that they're dealing with from a societal systemic level and and a personal level, whether that's stress in the workplace or in the academic setting, if they're in school, 
because we are focusing on educated Black women because educated Black women have lower health than white women with high school diploma. So the higher achievement a Black woman has, the sicker she is because there's less representation the higher she goes, which means the stress is much more. And so that's my suspicion is that we're going to see higher sexual dysfunction, but probably lower levels of distress. Interesting. Mm. What I'm hearing is it actually could be looked at as a privilege to be so focused on your sexual dysfunction compared to everything else that you're facing in life. You know, I, 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 I pause in saying that only because I don't really understand the intricacies of the sexual dysfunction when you compare it with white women to black women. All I can say is that there are longstanding archetypes that we have for white women and archetypes that we have for black women. And those are woven into society and how we raise black girls and how we raise white girls. So I think it's actually more related to that in terms of the distress and also culturally, how do black women cope as a culture versus how do white women cope as a culture? So I think there's also those fundamental cultural differences. Yeah, it's for lack of a better phrase, it's complicated. Thank you for clarifying my oversimplification. No, no. And yeah. I'm so curious about the archetypes because this is something I'm, I'm just getting my feet, you know, wet into. But which specific archetypes do you think are at play Absolutely. in this type of conversation? Yeah, so the archetypes, historically, what Richard's just telling us is that the archetypes of the superwoman and the angry Black female are the most devastating to the physical and mental health of Black women. So the Jezebel archetype, the the Mammy archetype, the, oh gosh, there are others, I apologize, it's late. <laughs> there, I think there's one where you're like, you're always assisting the white woman, you're yes. kind of like helping her a lot, soothing her. For the man, it's like the magical Negro, yes. but yeah. there's a female counterpart. Yes, there is, and I, for some reason, my brain is just... I will, it'll come to me. We'll add it later. We'll add it later. Show notes, but. <laughs> so Superwoman and the angry Black woman. So yeah. Tell us more about that versus the white archetype and how those are impacting how much someone might feel disabled or bothered by these symptoms. Yeah. So the angry Black woman archetype, that is rooted in the fact that they're thinking that Black women are just angry. So if they express any type of emotion that isn't a neutral emotion, the being perceived as an angry Black female means that you are out of control. You're almost like the coon, pickaninny, like those types of archetypes of Black men, the brute. It's like the female version of the, of the brutal Black man, right? Animalistic. Mm. Like they have no emotional control. And because of that, angry Black woman is unsuitable in the professional setting. They're unsuitable mm. as a partner. But particularly, we see this devastating in terms of academic achievement and professional achievement. And the superwoman is basically, they're capable of everything. They are the provider. They are the sin eater of everyone. They never get mad. <laughs> they clean, they cook, they work, they do everything. And they're fine with it. So they are actually superwoman. And they're, quote, resilient, right? So resilience, quote, like people say, oh, you're so strong, you're so resilient. And, and that actually has devastating consequences because that person doesn't have an outlet. Right. right. They, they don't have access to their range of emotions yes, at they, all. They don't because it goes back to slavery and the roots of gynecology and how they 
tested half of the procedures that we know today, like hysterectomies, on enslaved women without anesthesia because they were perceived to not experience pain the way white women experience pain. So that superwoman archetype is actually very, very dangerous because it kind of mirrors that concept of either this person's an animal or a robot, but not truly human. How do you think that shows up in the sexual health realm, those archetypes? I think in the sexual health realm, it shows up in women taking less autonomy over protection. So when we're thinking about STI prevention, things like that, we have less autonomy or more brutality towards women of color in that capacity. I think we also see that typically when we're talking about, there was one study where you're talking about heterosexual women in long-term relationships in terms of, well, I might be experiencing pain or incontinence, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell my partner. But then it, it adds up because, oh, I also have to do this, 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 and this as this superwoman. And then years later, you see them producing this issue that they have, but then they've already had hypertension, diabetes, all the things. So their nervous system has taken over (laughs) or they've swallowed all of that stress and now it's manifested itself in these chronic conditions that are much more difficult to manage at that point. And we think of how threat indicates pain intensity level, right? Mm -hmm. The threat level correlates with the pain intensity. So then we think of someone who is constantly guarding themselves against what might be said to them or how they need to react to something. They're facing microaggressions, racism, and any other intersections. That's just one layer. We're not even getting into all the possible stackings of it. And what I see there is a nervous system that is lit up. Right. It's almost primed to respond with pain in an effort to protect you. And then the pelvis is like where we store everything, where we store our most intimate, the things that we're scared of, the things that we love that feel good. It's all down there for us. Absolutely. And I think right now we're still in the theory stage in terms of pelvic health. We, we don't have anything truly robust looking at this so that we can make a definitive conclusion. But the theory of racism being one of the reasons why we're seeing disparities in healthcare has been a theory for a long time. We know this now. Is, it's just legit. It's a fact. It's yeah, a fact. there's no argument. There's no argument. There, there is a fact. But Dr. David Williams from Harvard, his whole career was to make this point. And he made it. Not that far into his career, he made it. And he has two great TED Talks if you ever want to check it out. But I just think that this is really interesting. And then also when you're talking about sexual health, we also need to think about that Jezebel stereotype. Right. So the loose black female, the the video vixen, all those things. Can she twerk? And oh, okay, so welfare queen. Did I say welfare queen as one of the stereotypes? So that's one of the archetypes is welfare queen. Is that similar to the bad mom archetype? Would that fall into it? Yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, the welfare queen was actually coined by former president, the late Ronald Reagan. And that was part of his, I I believe it was his presidential campaign in 1979, or either his re-election campaign in 83, I forget. But it was one of the most brilliant marketing strategies of all time, (laughs) or propaganda, whatever you want to call it, where he basically had this Black woman in a fur coat, eating a steak, Cadillac, but she's on welfare. Look what she's doing with your hard-earned dollars. Mm, Wow. 
And that's where all that began. You start putting that on television. And when we think about the silent educator, that is that. How many times did that play for a long time? Mm -hmm. It was crazy for me to learn about the crack cocaine issue. (laughs) And there's a whole, there's documentaries to watch on it. I'm probably not going to be able to explain all of it. But how that was given to people, was introduced, was policed so much harder And resulted in this belief that, oh, Black women are just cracked out moms who don't care about their babies at all and and created that stereotype. And then we saw that show up in television and on film. And it's like everywhere we turn, we're getting input. And we need to be so careful of paying attention to the input we see and questioning it and questioning where its roots are what it's teaching us, what our biases are. Someone else said this, so I'm not taking credit, but they said biases are the result of having a brain and being alive in the world. So just so you know, we all have them. Nobody here is exempt, but it is your responsibility to become conscious of that and start to unpack it and not unpack it on your clients or on anyone. Yeah. Well, ideally not on anyone, but you're going to need some help. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I don't think it's just consciousness. I think it's also accepting that you have been racist. You will be racist. That's just a fact. And if you can sit with that and be like, there's a lot of feelings that brings up, of course. And being able to sit with those feelings and decide to focus on something different, that's where you can make change. But if you're blind to it, if you're unconscious to it, I guess that's where we run into issues. Absolutely. And I open up my course with this concept of the racist, because I think people, we just need to get that out of the way. That word is used as a weapon on so many different levels. And I say that oftentimes it's viewed like you might as well be like being called a communist in the 40s or 50s, right? No one wants to be called racist. I'm a good person. I'm not racist. I'm not running around with white sheets. Okay, let's everyone simmer down. Look at just like what we just discussed about all those silent messengers that we got or not so silent messengers that we're getting in media and movies and all of that. So of course, we're going to have these beliefs and biases and stereotypes based on the information we're consuming that is rooted in racism. And so if you say, oh, I'm racist, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you're human living in this world. And you're going to have racist thoughts, you're going to have racist ideology and behaviors, and you're going to ascribe to it because it's in everything. It's like really not fun glitter. (laughs) Wow. I'm not (laughs) laughing at the idea, but I am laughing at the metaphor of just like racist glitter. Like it's it's everywhere. It's like stinky, not cute glitter that's extra sticky. And it's everywhere. You're and like, I got it all out. And then you rub your eye and you're like, yes. what the hell is like, this? I have all these like glitter eye boogers. <laughs> I just think we all just need to embrace that we're bombarded with it all the time. And once you understand that it's there, then you can actually have more peace. Rather than resisting yeah. it and saying, that's not me. I somehow managed to escape the racist schooling that my education system in the U.S. provided for 12 to 18 years. And somehow I walked out of that unscathed. Would we say it that way? That sounds pretty ridiculous, right? Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking of that scene in, what is it, World War Z? Have you all seen that? I haven't. 
a while ago. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Just describe it. Well, there's this scene where these, you know, everyone's sick. I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't watched it. But there's this kid that he's crouched over and there's all this pandemonium happening around him. And he almost seems like calm in that space. He's mm. just like, I'm just watching all these crazy people around me and I'm just chilling. And that's, I think, when you get to a place of radical acceptance and understanding if, oh, this is what it is. It's not okay, but I get it. And now I can move through life, eyes wide open, knowing how to navigate and monitor and be just a better community member. It's actually quite liberating. It gives you a choice. Yeah. Of how you want to be in the world instead yeah. of just default reacting. Yeah. Well, you see, it has been an amazing conversation. We love to end all of our guest episodes with a lightning round of questions. Ooh. We're not going to ask you to solve world peace, but we are going to ask you a few things. Sweet. Fun things. <laughs> yeah. The first of which is what is your favorite drink at the moment? Okay, so my favorite drink, this is going to sound disgusting. Actually, <laughs> no, I'm not going to share that with you. It's too embarrassing. I'll just say this. I like a blood in sand. So that scotch, uh, cherry liqueur or herring or whatever, orange juice and some, oh my gosh, I think it's, uh, what is in a Manhattan? It's bitters, bourbon, and oh, oh. Why is my brain not working tonight? I drink Manhattans all the time. <laughs> I don't drink those all the time. I don't do the brown water. That's, well, uh, look it up. Blood and sand. They're delicious. They're delicious. So that's my favorite drink. It's a scotch drink. Everyone on this podcast has been giving us these awesome drink recipes. And we joked with our last guest, we're going to start putting together a conscious clinician drink book. You should. Cocktail book. Cocktail book. Because okay. <laughs> we left the alliteration. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Okay. It's scotch, sweet vermouth, herring cherry liquor, fresh squeezed orange juice, and you garnish with an orange peel. Oh, okay. That oh, would have bothered me good. all night. It was, it's delicious. Excellent. All right. Next question is, what is the best book you've read lately? Oh, goodness. Tell Me What You Want by Justin Leigh Miller. It's all about sexual desire. Mm. That's on my reading list. He's got like the cover of two people like touching hands or something. Yes. Yes. I think so. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Okay. I will bump it up the list then. So what is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? Huh. That's a very good question. I'm just, I'm going to think about it and I will just do it in do it in a work context. I I have to tell myself who I am in that moment. I have to get back to okay, who am I here? And then I have to tell myself I have one side of the story. I need to get all sides before I come to a conclusion. Now, is there an affirmation that you always go to or do you give yourself a different here's who I am depending on the situation you're in? I oftentimes like take a breath, close my eyes for a second, and that's just me getting back into myself for a sec. It keeps me from reacting to the energy. It's very easy to get swept away in the energy of a challenging situation or in conflict, and you have to almost remove yourself from that energy and then go back into the situation grounded. I love mm -hmm. it. What are my core values in this context mm -hmm. that helps you anchor in a different yeah. way? That's amazing. Next question for you. If you weren't a PT slash sex educator, what would you do for work? I think about this all the time. It's actually a tie between something in the art world. So 
whether it's curator, art historian, find just to be completely fascinating. And if I had actual talent, I would be an artist, like artistic talent. Or I would do something in business. I I think finance is really fascinating. I'd love to be like a venture capitalist and someone who could just invest gobs of money into... (sighs) For people of color and their small businesses and their startups, like I want to be that person's like, oh, you need three million dollars? Here you go. You know, yeah, <laughs> like cool. that would be really cool. I could definitely see you being an art curator, maybe because it's how well curated your own headshot, Instagram, everything is. But that to me sits so well, and maybe that's how you amass your fortune to then become a venture capitalist. You right. can call me for coaching and lifestyle strategy anytime you see. I've, I've basically got your life path. I mean, out. I think <laughs> you do. I think you do. With my art therapy Sunday, uh, it makes sense that I would want something in art because I think art is so important. So, yeah. Yeah. And last question here. How do you define being a conscious clinician? Oh, I define being a conscious clinician as not being precious about everything, about what mm-hmm. I do. Like, I'm just... Hey, if I mess up, I mess up. If I need to learn more, I'll learn more. It's really in service to my patients. And so I'm happy to learn. I'm happy to be better. Cool. Awesome. How can people keep in contact with you or reach out to you if they want to? Absolutely. You can get me on my website at www.uclogic.com, Y-O-U-S-E-E Logic. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at UC Logic, or you can just email me at info at uclogic.com. Awesome. Thank you for coming on and having a a very inspiring, eye-opening conversation. I hope that our listeners walk away with something new from today. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.